The following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Comey Snake. Welcome back to Escape from New York Minute, where we celebrate and analyze the dystopian classic one minute at a time. I'm Eric Doig. And I'm Molly Balin. And joining us this week from the next real and Marvel movie minute, Andy Nelson. Welcome, Andy, to prison. <laughs> Thank you. What a fun time it will be. <laughs> <laughs> and we kick off this week, uh, minute 55, with the minute starts out. Brain is angry that Snake has put it put him in an impossible situation, and it ends with Snake knocking out a member of the Duke's gang from inside a car. So uh, we got some interesting stuff going on with this minute. We, we started out uh, finishing up what's going on at the end of last minute with uh, Snake and the uh, Brain and Maggie hiding out as they're watching the Duke try to find out where Brain is. And Brain makes an interesting comment here that ties into what we... We were discussing last week about the infamous diagram of the bridge, and mm. we had a couple. Our last week, Molly and our guest came up with a couple of theories of how someone could have gotten a map across to Brain if he was shot and killed. <laughs> and the two theories that were thrown out was he stole the map and made his way across with the map, and then and gave it to them, and then was shot and killed, or he made a map. And he left it behind with Brain saying, I made this map. I'm going to go test it out to prove if it's true. Made it across, but got killed anyway by the U.S. police force. So with all that in mind, if, the la- if either one of those theories is correct, it means that the map was the poor bastard who got killed's map. And yet the Duke, uh, I'm sorry, Brain says the Duke is looking for, quote, my diagram of the bridge. And considering the other guy died for it, it most certainly is not Brain's diagram of the bridge. Mm-mm. <laughs> well, he likes to claim things, right? <laughs> and I, I mean, I think now it's in his possession. So I think it's fair to call it his, even if he didn't actually <laughs> draw it. And and who's going to know, really? And I think the I think Brain can get away with that at this point. So Possession, nine-tenths of the law. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, and it's an interesting uh, comment, because right at the beginning, he's also talking about how, uh, I mean... That that the Duke is going to be upset when he finds out that he's with Snake. That's the other thing that that we learn here. And so that did make me ask, you know, I mean, obviously, everybody seems to know who Snake is. It's kind of this world where people, he carries this name of weight where everybody recognizes him just by his name. Maybe not by his look, but as soon as they hear Snake Plissken, oh, I thought you were dead. You know, it's it's the whole kind of running gag in the movie here. And obviously, it sounds like the Duke knows who he is, because now the Duke, he says, is going to be, he's going to kill me for, you know, hooking up with you, whatever he says. You know, I, I knew it was a bad idea. And so it's it's an interesting setup that uh, Snake carries this weight and clearly seems like, you know, with all these people, he's kind of one of them. But it, it did make me wonder when when this comment is made, why is it that that's the comment that he says that Duke will kill me because I'm hanging out with you? Yeah, I wonder, I, I always interpreted that as he's with, that the Duke demands complete loyalty. So if Brain is with anybody, 
other than the Duke. It almost doesn't matter that it's Snake that he's with. If it had been anyone, the Duke's gonna gonna want him dead because he's not there when the Duke wants him to be there. He's got the map, and now he's running around with someone else. And how is he going to explain to the Duke why he's not home, why he's with this guy Pliskin, what their plan was, why he left the library with him? Um, and so, yeah, everyone knows who Snake is, and, and we'll see uh, later on in the movie, including the Duke. But I wonder if it's just more, he's just not where the Duke wants him to be when he wants him to be there, and it's like, oh, shit, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the implication is that kind of like how Brain sussed out that Snake was from the other side because he's got guns, he's relatively clean, that he's working for the man. And so I think the Duke being a streetwise kind of a guy is going to pick up rather quickly that Snake has been put in because they have this obviously very like high-value individual. And Brain has already kind of made this sort of side deal with Snake to go get the president, which is, you know, the Duke's prize here, and there's a big plan. So I think just by virtue of Snake being present, without any other, you know, context is going to alarm the Duke, and the Duke will presume the worst. Do you think it's more the fact that it's Snake as opposed to any other criminal they could have cut a deal with? Or do you think it's the fact that he's carrying a gun? Because that does seem like the strange thing here. Like another criminal in... New York doesn't seem that out of the blue, but carrying around a big weapon like this, that seems like, to me, more like giant dead giveaway. Yeah, I think it's more about, because I presume there's a lot of big bad men running around, Yeah, you know? Uh, I think it's the presumption that this guy's loaded up with equipment that obviously didn't come from inside, and that's our big fat red flag. Exactly. Yeah, yeah and maybe that because Snake is working for... Hauk, the Duke would view that as the ultimate betrayal because it's not only is Brain running off with someone else instead of helping the Duke now, but he's doing it for the man. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, a, he's a traitor, you know? He I is. love it. Yep. I, yeah, it all, I think that all works. I think it makes sense. I, I do also just have to just, and I'm sure you guys have talked about this because this is not the first minute with Brain, but his little scarf that he sports <laughs> is just. <laughs> It's just really fantastic. You are the third <laughs> guest in a row to mention the scarf. <laughs> How could you not? You see that on screen. It's like you got to you got to point that out. It's just so beautiful. It, it's important <laughs> to accessorize even when you're a prisoner. Yeah. <laughs> well, as we learn, even from these two guys that are uh, that are the Duke's men, you know, they both have their own unique style, and I, I think they showed in the form of their hats. They both are wearing some pretty unique headwear, as we see, as as Pliskin kind of comes up with his plan and puts it into place. Yeah, let, let's start with the guy sitting on the hood. Yeah. <laughs> He's got one of those hats with the flap where one of the flaps is up, which... Yeah, it's like an Australian military. Yes, uh, yes. It's, it hat, reminds yeah. me of two, two other uh, things from pop culture. Uh, Muldoon from Jurassic Park, the guy who, who gets uh, mm-hmm. who hunts the velociraptors. He wears one of those hats. Clever and, girl. Uh, old G.I. Joe fans, uh, Rakondo, a member of G.I. Joe, wore a hat <laughs> like that. He was like the jungle soldier. I don't know what you need one of those hats like that for in New York prison, but I think he just probably thought it looked cool. Yeah, well, it's probably something he found, and he's like, oh, yeah. And it looks like, is it, is it red? Like, it looks like it's pretty roughed up, but it looks like it had been red yes. at one point. Which now it's just, just like it... rusty colored or something. <laughs> Maybe when he's not working with the Duke, he goes back to the theater, and he's part of the troop there. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, this also appears to be crushed velvet. So that adds another fashion dimension to this. And the man's wearing a beige pleasant or a beige peasant blouse, which <laughs> also it's kind of Ren fairy. Right. So, <laughs> he totally is. Like he's another theater guy. This is just his day off. Yeah. Yeah. And also he's wearing sunglasses. And, you know, we we mentioned last week the Duke is wearing sunglasses. And the guy that's inside the car, who we'll get to in a second, although he has one lens missing, he's wearing sunglasses. And remember, there's almost no lighting in Manhattan prison. So right. it, it, it's incredibly hard to see, but it, <laughs> you, you got to look cool, right? It's all about the look. Well, can we just like get like into this for a second? This These guys are the lookouts, right? So... Why as a lookout are you wearing sunglasses <laughs> at night? Like this is the biggest like botched even this car is a botched job. You know, we're we're <laughs> almost there, but like this is just a collection of fuckery that's just amazing to me. That <laughs> I mean, I know, I understand in general it's very hard to get, you know, good people to do work for you, but this is just you know, if you weren't picking up hats, man, and sweet peasant blouses. And that's the other thing is, like, somebody left this behind, right? Like, someone's like, I don't need the peasant blouse and the crushed velvet military hat if I'm escaping. And they're like, hey, we're going to use this. This is cool. Or right. this is what he was wearing when he was processed. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> a, maybe that was his crime. That's amazing, Eric. That did not even occur to me. That this is authentic. <laughs> <laughs> like to his soul, this is an authentic fashion choice. He's not taken it off since he came in. <laughs> wow. Well, and he's he's even got the, like the little peasant belt around his shirt, kind of you know holding his shirt in place. It's it all fits really well with with his really special look. <laughs> yeah, the belt is outside the blouse. It's You're not right. even in pant loops it's it's around the shirt he's wearing right kind of like a peasant would wear like yeah. they're, they're just holding something up through the <laughs> shirt i don't i don't really i don't get it i don't get it so then the guy in the car as i said for some reason he he has sunglasses but for some reason one of the lenses is missing but he wears the sunglasses anyway uh and what he has on his head, I can't even describe it. It's just about like a rag wrapped around his head. I mean, I don't even know. <laughs> well, it looks like he's got a hat, like like a because I see a rim. Like when he's looking forward, like out the out the windshield, it looks like there's a a, a short brim, like a pretty okay, narrow yes. brim. But then, yeah, it looks like he took like a brown like cloth or something and just kind of draped it around where it's <laughs> it's like a pseudo turban or something. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the function of that one. Again, it's it's about looking the part, I guess. Yeah. I did think it was funny, though, the, the fact that his sunglasses have one lens popped out. Just the fact that this is like another character who weirdly is kind of wearing an eye patch in some sense. It's mm -hmm. like that's kind of an interesting uh, kind of comparison with Snake here. I don't know what it says about the movie. but <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the guy sitting on the hood has no eyes, and that's why he's wearing full sunglasses. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, no, it's it's funny, and, and you you mentioned the fact that these guys are the lookouts, and just how uh, poor of a job they are doing. It is interesting that both of them are basically. I mean, they're sitting on the car uh, out in front of 
the library, but they're both looking at the library. Like they're not even looking away, like looking out, which is in the title. Look out. (laughs) (laughs) And, but they're both just staring at it. And so it's, it's so easy for a snake to sneak up. It just, it kind of cracks me up the ease at which he has to kind of sneak up and pop these guys and how quiet they, you know, when he's uh, popping them in the face, the first guy, it's just such a nicely uh, quiet job that he does that the guy in the hood doesn't even notice. Yeah, these two guys are the epitome of that phrase where you had one job. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, even this car is kind of ridiculous because I presume (laughs) the bars there that are replacing the glass. So they've replaced the back windshield. They've replaced the front windshield and the passenger windows with giant thick bars. And all Snake has to do is just take the butt of the gun through the bars and hit him in the face. So... (laughs) In in all the ways, the security feature has failed completely. <laughs> yeah, there's there's not much good being done with this uh, with this car. The way that it's it's being protected. Well, and the fact that it's like a Griswold <laughs> station wagon <laughs> doesn't help them out at all. I know they're scavenging. They're taking whatever cars they can find that work. This just happened to be the one that uh, they give to the lookouts. I don't know. I mean, it fits it fits with them, unfortunately. Andy, I had the same exact note. It reminds me of the family truckster from back from vacation. <laughs> right. I like to imagine that, you know, after that vacation that they took, that it ends up <laughs> in, in New York by 1997. And now these guys are driving it around. And so this is a 1976 Ford LTD Country Squire. And I'll tell you, the car looks like a car that would be called a Country Squire. <laughs> <laughs> and interestingly enough, the guy sitting on the hood is dressed like a country ah! squire. <laughs> and this model of car did not used much in uh, pop culture. It was, uh, interestingly enough, it wasn't a previous John Carpenter movie, though. He used this make of car in The Fog, and it showed up in a couple of Chips episodes. And it was actually in an episode, incredibly enough, of Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Which- <gasps> doesn't really wow. fit most of the cars that Seinfeld uses on that show. Which I'm episode surprised. was that? Oh, oh sorry, go ahead. I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm surprised it's in chips. I, I mean, I, I would imagine it has to be a mom in trouble or something. I can't imagine one of the guys they're chasing racing yeah. around. In one of the Probably not, yeah. <laughs> the, and it, you know, it's funny because it also reminds me of a station wagon that I had as a kid. It totally feels like the same sort of car. I think ours might have actually been even longer than this, but... Uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I, you can understand why when they evacuated the city and said we're turning it into a prison, why whoever the owner of this car was, why they left it behind. <laughs> They're like, we can write it off. Parents <laughs> will cover it. Uh, so, yeah, well, it, so, so this is... It's an interesting minute as far as... Um, I mean, we're getting into, a, you know, some point where he's really starting to interact with the duke and we're getting some of that the tension building because obviously now we're getting to a place where we're having the two the two forces we've got pliskin and his team and we've got the duke and his team and kind of building into that now um but it's interesting and and i don't know this is a movie where i feel like carpenter was kind of on the edge of of still kind of the low budget world and uh but not quite on the edge where he was doing stuff at a real high production level and I feel like some of the sound effects in here are a little, a little, they could have used a little boosting. 
And like when he pops the guys, I know it's supposed to be quiet, but I feel like it's almost too soft for a strike mm-hmm. to hit somebody and knock them out completely. I don't know. Is that something you guys feel at all? Like with the sound effects, do they do they work for you in this scene as far as when he hits the two guys? Uh, so he uses the, the gun both times, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he hits those. He's socking them in the, in the face with the, with the butt of the gun both times, yeah. right? Right, right. Yeah, it, it should make kind of like a crack. I mean, you got to figure probably like broke their noses or something, right? I would think so. Some I mean, kind of and obviously he's using his ninja skills to knock him out in one blow. Yeah. Too. Right. I mean, I had a, I had a note that it was a little bit, it was a weird knockout for me. Like, yeah. and maybe that just is because I'm accustomed to modern movies that when someone gets hit in the face and knocked out, it looks a certain way and sounds a certain way now. And, and it definitely didn't quite sound right to me. And I had a note about that. Now I can't think of anything right now that uh, of other sound effects that I'm like, eh, that's not, mm, you know, it's it a little weird. But yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, I think that it's an interesting trope to just in general of the dude who gets hit in the face and then immediately is knocked out. You know, because I understand that there's like, you've jiggled the brain around enough that the body's like, woo, we got to shut down now. So I get that. But I, it always seems a little bit unplausible to me. Like there's no like, I've cried out, you know, I've said something, I've, you know, some sort of other noise from the individual to, you know, instigate some other motion from this other guy who's on the hood. But, you know, I mean, I know it's B team, but yeah, I, I always find it to be a weird trope and a little bit unrealistic in general. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, I, I feel like it, okay, it I can buy it for the world, for kind of this low-budget world that Carpenter's creating here. And it really doesn't bug me too much. But when I'm looking at it over and over again, I'm like, that's a really easy, really easy hit. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And also, I, I do question his plan. Like, is this the smartest plan to take these two guys out? I'm going to hit the first guy, and then I'm going to hide in the car, but I'll slam the door so the other guy comes over, and <laughs> then curiously looks in, and then I'll pop him. <laughs> I feel like, I don't know, I feel like there could be a, another plan that might have been a little stronger, a, middle, a little more likely to succeed. I mean, I'm just amazed that it worked. You know, I, I'm proud of Snake for having come up with it. <laughs> well, it, it it is convenient for the plot that the guy on the hood, instead of saying, hey, Jim, what's going on there, or something that he makes no noise whatsoever and just walks over and peers into the car so that the Duke doesn't notice what's going on. Yeah, right, right. Very, you know, nice and convenient there. And I guess we're, we've, we're, well, we don't necessarily establish it in this minute, but these are not the only guys outside. Right. Apparently, right. Do we have any sense as to how many went in versus how many stayed out? I mean, I, I, it looked to me like Romero is the only one who actually went up the steps to the library to find Brain. I don't think anybody else went up with him. And then how far was this station wagon from the other cars? Yeah, we don't get a sense of the space at all. I mean, it's got to be far enough away that they're able to pull this off, as we'll see next minute that, you know, that they're able to get away. Yeah, right. And not here. I mean, obviously, his strikes are so ninja quiet that nobody can hear. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's it's good. It's fun. And I I think it works in context of creating the character of Snake Plissken as far as what he is accomplishing here. So to that end, I think that it is just fun to kind of watch. And, And it's one of those scenes where I can easily, I think, let go and just kind of get past and not worry too much about it because it works in context of who Snake Plissken is. Yeah. Because what a great character. I mean, seriously. Well, what's your, um, what's your, you have like a, uh, 
how like do you remember this movie coming out? You know, do you have you been a longtime fan of the movie? What's your history with the movie? I have no recollection of this movie coming out. This was not the type of movie that I would have been watching when I was uh, a kid in 1981. Like it just wasn't in my wheelhouse. I was watching kid films, animated mm-hmm. movies, uh, you know, Clash of the Titans types of things. I was watching anything that that made sense for a kid. I would not have even looking at the poster. Like I remember. I would always go to the video store and even as I got older, like the, the cover just looked, he looked too menacing. I think snake just scared me too much. I was like, <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to go near him. And so, you know, I was just one of those guys. I, I didn't get into watching a lot of these types of movies until I got older. And I really, I had a buddy in college who really loved uh, John Carpenter and, and would have movie nights periodically. And I don't think this was one of them, but we did watch a number of other Carpenter movies. And I really started enjoying Carpenter and, and, and you know, you go to film school, school and everybody's talking about directors and all that sort of stuff. And Carpenter was certainly one of them that people would talk about. And uh, he was never like a favorite of mine, but as I've grown older, like I've gone through and I've watched his entire filmography now. I've seen every movie that he's he's done because I, I really think that he is something special. And even if there is a low budget quality to his films, like this one, I still think that there is this real um, essence of Carpenter that he's putting into them. And this is a film I fluctuated with for a while. Like, I really enjoyed it the first time I saw it. And then I watched it again because we talked about it actually on our own podcast, The Next Reel. And I really kind of, I, I felt like he created this really big world and just didn't have what it uh, what he needed to really effectively create it as well as I wanted it to be. And so I kind of struggled with it a little bit. And I still think that some of that is there. I think it was a very ambitious project and he just didn't have the budget or possibly even as his third film, like the know-how to kind of really pull it off as much as I think he could have later in his career. But I just rewatched it again for the show and I'm like, you know, there's so much fun stuff in here. And even if there are those issues with, with kind of some of that low budget nature of it, I just think that it's a world that Carpenter created that is is so unique and so much fun. And Snake Plissken is such an interesting character that I've really kind of grown more respect for it now uh, upon rewatching it, revisiting it. I'm like, you know, there's really a lot of interesting stuff here. And, and, uh, and it's kind of just a wholly original world, and I have a great time with it. So, yeah, so I, I'm glad, actually, that we got to talk about it for the show so that I could kind of revisit it and find that connection with it again. So when uh, in looking at the... Um if the draft script, this the stake taking the guys out is really different from the way they ended up filming it. So this is how it happens in the draft script. The car stops, and there's actually three guys in the car. And Pliskin tells Brain and Maggie, wait here, walks out of the alley, goes, stands in front of the car so that, that they see him. He says, hey, punks. They look at him. He gives them the finger. <laughs> they jump out of the car. They've got knives and, you know, tire irons or something. And, and Pliska says, oh, it always works. And then they start moving down the alley towards him. And I, I, you know, and again, convenient for the movie. They're not, you know, he's selling, hey, Duke, someone's over here. And <laughs> he takes the rifle and he whacks them with the butt of the rifle and he knocks them all down. And then the third guy tries to get him and he jams him in the stomach, cracks him over the head and he knocks him down. So he takes all three of these guys out like immediately by himself in about three seconds. So, again, those ninja skills. <laughs> and uh, yeah, then he you know, says, come on. And he Mag- and then he brain and Maggie 
jump in the car and drive away. That's so funny. I feel like this almost would be better. Like I prefer this than, <laughs> than dragging them out to the alley and, and doing that. Cause then, cause this, I don't know, there's an element to snake that I think, I mean, he's, he's sharp on his feet, but also I think he can work um, very stealthily. And I think that's what we see here is he's got that stealth factor and he knows how to use it when he needs to. All right. So I like to uh, always tie our guests own shows in when i can into our show so <laughs> let me ask you this Uh-oh. question if tony stark ended up in manhattan prison but without any of his armor got just his tony stark brain how do you think he would fare in manhattan prison i think he would do probably amazingly well i think that you know right now we have a guy called brain here i think that he would usurp brain and he would redo everything that's going on in the library as far as the oil derrick that he's built <laughs> down there. It would be so uh, advanced down there that it would, it would be insane. And I think in short order, he would uh, be able to create some sort of uh, technological coup and take over and pretty much be running things. Well, thank you, Andy, for joining us for Minute 55. Uh, Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And uh, Andy will be here with us all week. Uh, y'all out there in the interwebs, where uh, can where can people find you, Andy, in, in podcast land? They can check out the shows that we have, uh, the Next Real Film Podcast. You can go to thenextreel.com. We've actually covered Escape from New York in a series we did talking about films from 1981 because there were quite a good one. Quite a few good ones that came out that year. Uh, and then they can learn more about the Marvel Movie Minute at marvelmovieminute.com where uh, we're, we're done with season one with Iron Man and we're gearing up for The Incredible Hulk. Should be, uh, it should be an interesting one to talk about because uh, it has a lot of people who, who are not fans. And so I'm, I'm curious to revisit that one. I can't imagine why. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I think we have one of them right here. No, I just, uh, the MCU is, that's, that's, that's my number one movie universe. It's even past Star Wars for me. But the Hulk, uh, that is my absolute bottom of my MCU ranking. And we can't wait to talk to you about it uh, on the show <laughs> next season. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, for us, uh, y'all out there, you can follow us on Twitter at NY Minute Pod. Uh, we also have a Facebook group, Brains Library, the Escape from New York Minute Hangout. I'd also like to give a little gratitude shout out to KJ Valencic, who created our awesome podcast music. And with that, be on time, stay out of the sewers, and we'll meet you on the other side of the wall. Mm-hmm.